1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balparan. Um, Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Neela Patacharya Saxena. She is a professor of English and Women's Studies at Nassau College, Nassau Community College, and we will be diving into her fascinating book, Absent Mother, God of the West. Neela, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: So you have to tell us a little bit about the genesis of of how you came to write uh, a book called Absent Mother Goddess of the West. I'm sure you have no shortage of snippets of that tapestry, some of which you share in the book. But, but, but you know, is this from your research yeah, um, in English, in women's studies? Do you have religious studies training? Is it from a literary perspective? What is your, how did this come about? And what is sort of your methodology, if you will?
0: Well, <laughs> it's a totally, I'm an, Totally accidental scholar of religion. Um,
1: <laughs> Aren't we all?
0: <laughs> so, actually, when I showed up in this country more than three decades ago and haltingly started to teach, every now and then a conversation will come up about religion. And actually, almost always, st- see, this is what happens uh, when you live submerged in the mother consciousness. I'm from Bengal and great goddesses were deeply ingrained in my cultural upbringing. Uh, Not just that, I had a very deep connection with Kali, which was totally personal. I never thought I will utter even a word about that inner journey. So what happened here is that not, not only that the goddess was dismissed, but it was assumed that all Indian women are oppressed uh, by its own patriarchy. And I know about Indian patriarchy, but this wholesale generalization that goddesses do not mean anything um, because there is this thing called patriarchy. So I began to explore that. I started to speak a little bit um, and began to wonder about the God of this land. I knew, (laughs) but it's a completely different thing when you experientially are led to that. So what happened um, that this whole challenge to my identity and the other thing that people were not seeing me as a professor of English, constantly there was challenge from students. Uh, This third world woman, what is she doing teaching? Oh, random stuff, even from scholars even from colleagues every now and then. Uh, So what happened was that I began to articulate my Kali consciousness more and more. Um, And that led to my first book called In the Beginning is Desire, Tracing Kali's Footprints in Indian Literature. And that's what suddenly landed me into the world of religion. Believe me, I did not know there was such a thing as American Academy of Religion. I didn't know, (laughs) so I have no training uh, in religious studies. Uh, My PhD was on Euro-American tragedy a long time ago from my university in Allahabad. Uh, I studied the Greeks. I studied. I thought I was studying Euro-America, and my understanding of literature. I am trilingual, so Bengali is my mother tongue. Hindi. I grew up uh, learning. So but the strange thing about Kali. And so in my college, I have to give credit to my community college where I was allowed to express myself. I was allowed to develop courses. Um, and then I thought, what happened to the mother God? Was there ever a mother God in the Western tradition? Um, I, when I developed the course called The Goddess in World Religions, that's when I started to see some amazing things. But in the meantime, I had been traveling all over Europe, mainly for a conference, which I mentioned in the book. Uh, And unconsciously, I kept looking for the mother god, uh, because I thought if Kali is not something that I have conjured up in my mind or just so-called Hindu goddess, what is the reality? Because she came to me as an experiential reality many, many years ago. Um, through my own family's Kali Sadhika and I called her pregnant nothingness. So that journey brought me to the, you know, literally this powerful presence of the Virgin everywhere in the European landscape. So as I developed the course, taught the course, and I saw the young women in the class, how transformational, (laughs) this experience of the Divine Feminine was for my young American students. So this is how slowly I think the book started to take shape. Um, And uh, more than 10 years of journeying into texts. I mean, I'm still a scholar and a teacher, so I have a lot of materials, (laughs) citations and all that. But I would say that the book actually is profoundly a personal journey. It's a personal journey, a kind of a reverse journey from China Galan's book. Uh, she has a book called Longing for Darkness, Tara and the Black Madonna, which was my first startling recognition that there is a black, completely black <laughs> figure, uh, mother figure in Europe. So I kind of trace unconsciously the journey into her land, like she journeyed into the Eastern world. I ended up journeying into her world and connected with this uh, profound mystery.
1: There's a number of pieces in what you say that I would love to dive into. Sure, um, we'll certainly have time to talk about some of the content of the book. Um, let us just talk a little bit about maybe the methodology and the what they call in religious studies the ethico-emic divide. So. Right. In terms of methodology, is it fair to say that it's primarily literary theory or that you primarily study um, the, you study religious texts in, in a manner comparable to how literature is studied? Is that fair to say?
0: Yes, yes. I would rather, uh, because that's my main training. Yes. Uh, literature is my love. Literature, that's what I teach. And understanding the language of scripture if it is too literalized and the metaphor gets lost the other thing that happens when scripture is too holy (laughs) so i kind of like my own literary reading if i have to put it within i mean but on the other hand from the very beginning i've been completely interdisciplinary so when i was doing my phd too you know psychology philosophy all those elements were integral to my understanding. Um, so it is interdisciplinary, but uh, I guess mainly from the literary studies perspective.
1: I can relate on a number of levels. I, my love was English uh, growing up, just language arts. In some years it was called in the curriculum in Ontario or, or English, more overtly in university. And that was by far my the course with which I had the most ease, fluidity, effortless Marks and all that. Uh, so I, I enrolled in the University of Toronto for an English degree. Ah, <laughs> total, total artsy-fartsy kind of lad <laughs> with a philosophy with a philosophy and history minor. Yes, yes. The, co- the goal was to teach because what what on earth would you do with that? Uh, I wanted to teach high school. That was my dream job then. And then I left school due to a number of pressures. And I came back and I I discovered that that uh, one could study Hinduism at university. But really, it took me a while to realize that I was looking at the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, my work on the Devi Mahatmya was using my literary and analytic mind, even right. drawing in, for example, Umberto Eco as a, as a theorist yep. to help us to grapple with Purana. Right. And on the one hand, you know, uh, <laughs> I teach at the OCHS and the word mythology might be a dirty word for some of the students there. And yet for me, it's not. and It means many things to many people. Right. But what I like to say is, irrespective of the historical veracity, mm-hmm. there is profundity in the, in the, in the, in the narrative structure and in, in the themes encoded within right. that, that can be, can can be, uh you know, that can be accessed. Right. Now, the other piece that I want to land on in that this interview is, um, it, it's not unique, but it may be a little less typical than most interviewers, interviewees in that, you are starting off from an inner experience of Kali, from a personal journey. And so would you say this book is for individuals also on an inner journey, or for individuals who would like to learn about literature, history, philosophy, culture? Would you say in terms of this, this very, very uh, artificial etic-emic divide, right. wh- who would you say should, is called to read this book? would benefit from this book?
0: (laughs) I would like to think both uh, because it is a combination of both. I am aware of the, you know, struggle. Uh, I think we have come far away in our collective history. Uh, The colonial history has created tremendous, uh, you know, conflict. It has created tremendous confusion, misreading, uh, but that has changed. I also find that in the um, way say the goddesses are seen as soon as scholars began to practice or maybe they were already practicing they were not talking about it because that wasn't kosher so uh, once that you know people started to come out of the so-called closet and not just that i think women uh, played a big role Uh, women first they started to challenge the so-called objective scholarship. Uh, they began to see that these are, this is not a universal perspective. You're not studying anything from some sort of an objective, you know, God's eye point of view. Uh, it is either a, you know, scholarly Western imperial perspective. Sometime it is highly androcentric. So um, I would think that we have come to a place in our collective history, where we have to see uh, the marriage of subjective and the objective. We have to see where our inner journeys are vitally important if we want to really reclaim a balanced uh, existence. We have created severe imbalance (laughs) uh, in our lives and on the planet. So I think my book has been received by a lot of people um, who are looking at, say, the planetary crisis, search for the divine feminine. And I was very happy to see that the scholarly world also has responded rather well.
1: Now, would you say, I mean, there's much I wish to say, but uh, uh, try as best as possible to feature your perspective on the podcast. Would you say that... How essential is that direct experience that you had? Is that um, that vision, that experience of what you call kali? How is that? That sounds to me and reads to me as it, it's a crucial component to your perspective. Is it not? And also, could you tell us then? Do you mean when you say kali? Are you talking about what one would visualize in the iconography, the, the, the what one may study in a religious studies course? Are you talking about something grander than this? This, this deity that's worshipped in Bengali, what do you mean when you say Kali?
0: <laughs> right. Okay. So the experience, I did not have a clue when it happened in my 20s. It was so radical that everything changed at that moment. And I do write about that in my first book, not in this one. It was a total dissolution experience. It's an experience where all concepts of God had vanished and the self had vanished. I mean, today I have words that I can uh, use to describe, but it did try to, I was, it was so bewildering and horrendously scary. It wasn't some fun thing um, and it went on and on and on. I was terribly sick physically. I had no idea what was going on, but I know it was a total meltdown. But one day it was just this magnificent uh, vibration of the cosmos that I was experiencing. It wasn't until much later when my guru arrived, when he said that I had a glimpse of the Samadhi experience, And Kali, I mean, in Sanskrit, as you probably know, uh, one who takes you out of time from Kala. So she's this experience, she eats time. So she devours time. Uh, And time creates self, right? Or whatever we think the self is. So, and spontaneously I described her as pregnant nothingness to capture the paradox And then I was led to the books on Tantra. And I would call myself a practitioner of Tantric traditions, both Shakta and Vajrayana, um, but without any identity. So when I say Kali, she's the one who devours your identity. But then it takes a lifetime to integrate. What is that? It took me to the journeys that I couldn't have dreamed of. It, uh, and again, it's something that we are born with. Um, and then there are many Kalis. <laughs> and now having studied a little bit of the tantras, I know that these are levels of experience of dissolution. Um, laya Samadhi is of various kind. Nagarjuna speaks of 20 of them. We know there are 12 Kalis in Kashmir Shaiva tradition, which is a kaula path. So, so, but without that glimpse that I was given, profound by Shidama, I'm pretty sure even though I don't have any proof of that, the Kali Sadhika of my family, the initial one, none of this will make any sense. Um, And I was so frightened to even open my mouth about it because people would think I was having some sort of psychotic (laughs) experience or something like that I didn't know what it was so Kali is the name and the form I guess given by our tradition but it's something we all have we all get a glimpse every now and then
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your experience uh, if I may comment uh, Please it, it seems to me that you know I tend to start off crudely generalizing painting with a broad brush and then we slice and dice as need be for articles and conferences but sort of I'm sort of a broad strokes thinker and seems to me that what we call religion is really the 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 hybrid the the love child of the socio-cultural and the spiritual and there's much to be said about Durka being a a tribal deity who's who's offered um, alcohol and meat offerings and you know, the word Chandi may not be a, maybe originally a quote unquote Dravidian word, and there's much to be said about the socio cultural garb of Durga. But see, when most worship her, they worship her as Amba, as Ma, as right. Adi Shakti, as Mula Prakriti, right. as Umbarashakti Shakti in Maha. And sometimes they choose to think of her as the abyss. Sometimes they focus on the visage in front of them. And for most devotees in my experience, those are not mutually exclusive. And so the reason I asked about your vision of quote-unquote Kali is to get a sense of what I intuited from reading your book in that Kali for you may well be the devata of, of, um, uh, of, of Bengali culture. Indeed, but you're talking about, uh, you know, the molasses abyss behind time. You know, you're talking about uh, what, what Buddhists may call shunyata Yes,
0: yes. You're
1: talking exactly. about the non-being that is pregnant with being, waiting right. to become. Right. You know, you're talking about something that is not that may be perceived and discussed through language and culture and history and society. But you're talking about an experience that in your view transcends all that and can be accessed by others. And there may be no more fitting or glorious way to um, personify or or color. No greater garb uh, for that experience than the Black mother, the mother who eats time. And so there's this play, there's this play between the sociocultural and the the cognizable and the abyss, the abyss where you are nowhere, there's nowhere to be, you are no one, there's no one to be. But the madness that is, you know, the ecstatic fervor of the one who has a smidgen of that truth, you see. And so we oscillate and it's difficult for folks to understand in language. When someone in the West says God, They mean something very very different than when a hindu says god Mm -hmm. you see Mm -hmm. when a western person says i don't believe in god god they're thinking of a specific construction of the divine of masculine divine that we see in in you know the the books of judaism and christianity when a hindu talks about god they may they may well mean the experience of kali they may well mean shiva vishnu atman you know, so so this is why I want to talk a little bit about the experience. And when you're writing about, you know, the absent mother god of the West, you're not talking about, well, why don't, why don't we see Kali Murtis right, no. <laughs> in the streets, in the streets of the West? What are you talking about in your book? Right, what do you talk right. about?
0: So I think this is what was the most um, beautiful. By the way, you communicated so beautifully. But I'm no longer sure that the Western world sees God this way or that way Uh, because my journey brought me to something so startling and it kind of in a way convinced me that human beings are the same. The sociocultural lens, of course, is different and that's what has created. Most people I know have both this exoteric aspect and esoteric aspect, like our inner lives and our external lives. But they do not necessarily all go to the depth of that being because the abyss is after all, a scary thing, (laughs) the Nihil. Yes, Kali is Shunya uh, and Kali comes from the Buddhist tradition actually. Uh, Bengal was completely, totally um, tantric Buddhist for many time, for, for many, many years. And in Bengal, uh, all these different uh, Agamic traditions, which are different from the Vedic tradition, uh, they kind of mingled. Uh, so the socio-cultural experience of Bengal in particular, and Indians in general, uh, actually, saturated by, by with some aspect of shakti. So the notion of shakti as this, and by the way, adi shakti, adiyakali is what I call the mother principle. That is beyond the duality of prakriti and purusha or Shiva shakti. That that's everything dissolves. You cannot have uh, the you know duality. Uh, but in the Western world. Over and over again, my experience showed that they had lost the shakti, the divine feminine aspect. And that's what had created a kind of severe um, psycho-spiritual crisis. I started to see every day in my experience uh, that people didn't even know what I was talking about. The God was completely male. Uh, The uh, women, students, when I'll ask them, even those who will say that, oh, that's just a spirit. And so can you imagine that spirit in a female form? It was always no. Doesn't matter whether it was an ordinary student or somebody with a PhD. Women themselves believed. And they identified with the binary, dualistic, hierarchical organization that the female is just body, flesh, matter, you know, (laughs) darkness. I always teach this in my classes, this hierarchical dualism, which is utterly different. This is metaphysical dualism versus say, the yin yang polarity, Shiva Shakti's dance. So the socio-cultural aspect plays a huge role in everyday life of people. Uh, But when it comes to the exploration of the depth dimensions, Uh, which I see everywhere now in the Western world. But things have also changed in the last 20, 30 years. Tremendous interest in goddess spirituality, tremendous interest in divine feminine. And I think people who've been doing yoga for all these years, people who have been experiencing, say, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, esoteric Christianity, esoteric, Um, Judaism, Kabbalah, they're all suddenly coming out of the closet so yeah I think my journey began with that question and it led me to things that were just absolutely marvelous but yeah even today people do (laughs) make this distinction that uh, God in uh, in the biblical sense is male but Kali I don't think is God either <laughs> because that's um, that's a name and form given to something that you as I said so beautifully expressed of this experience of um, the abyss well,
1: you know yeah. uh, what you're talking about relates to various different pieces of my life and work in 2010 to 2013 I used to do a whole bunch of sort of goddess talks and workshops in the Toronto practicing, seeking primarily yoga community. They were looking for enrichment or some tools to think about and grapple, grapple with um, really what we may call Indian religion, but they were most interested in the feminine divine. They were most interested yes. in goddess workshops and understanding and relating to the divine as feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's really... Uh, there's lots to be said about what you're arguing in your book and sort of thoughts that have come to me over the years. Let's maybe focus on the content at first. I'll share some more towards the end of the interview. But what do you find in your book? What do you argue?
0: What I'm arguing.
1: What do you show? Yeah, what do you show?
0: Uh, well, I show that the divine feminine has always been there, even though uh, textually and scripturally you can see there's a chapter called Matricide, extremely. Difficult chapter, negrophobia. I also talk about negrophobia, the fear of blackness, fear of death. Uh, I show that it has had, it has led to devastating, devastating consequences. So there's some part of it diagnostic for myself. Um, some people resonate with it, some people don't. That's a different thing. But it was a journey of discovery, seeing. See, we all somehow internalize. Uh, racism, sexism, classism, imperial aspect of the self, this bloated self. So I think in the course of the journey and the writing of the book, I see the roots of these things because we've been trying to solve things on, you know, surface level. Often I talk in my classes that the cultures need collective psychotherapy. So where we have to go see what has been so scary, what we have suppressed and at what cost. We have gained a lot, you know, look at this amazing machine that has that is connecting us at this time of COVID all over the world. Um, but I think I have from the response that people have given me that I am able to show um, that absent mother god of the West is not that absent. <laughs> it's easy to tap into her, you know, kind of almost scintillating, vibrating presence. And, and that's also experiential, by the way. It's not a theory. I had some amazing experiences in the caves of Pitagorio in Samos Island, which I write about. So the virgin, both in her exoteric and in the esoteric aspect, actually came to me. So she's not a theory. She's not a figure for me anymore. So the Virgin Mother, black, in her black aspect, which is integral. I also discovered the Mary Magdalene, my current, I'm on sabbatical this semester, and I'm working on Gnostic Gospels. And I found an incredible teacher. Uh, She's in the California area. Recently, I discovered her, another magical thing that I write about in my blog. So, people who are looking to see a kind of marriage of East and West, people who are seeing that the divine feminine is not a concept, she's not just a murti, she's not just, uh, she doesn't belong to any religion. And the most extraordinary aspect, the she totally destroys our narrow identities. All the dueling dualities, I call them dueling dualities, whether religious strife between men and women, races, they come from very rigid identities. And this experience of the mother, I think even a glimpse can really loosen that hardened identity. Uh, think about in the name of all these things we have. In the name of religion, we have killed so many people. We continue to have that kind of strife. But at the source of every tradition is the stream. I call it the uh, stream of Mother Consciousness, nurturing but fierce. She's not some goody-two-shoe, you know, <laughs> soft deity either. Uh, where life and death dance together. Um, So I hope that those who pick up the book um, will have some fun with it.
1: I'm sure they will. And I, I, of course, fully respect what you were saying in terms of the book being spawned by a religious experience that is accessible to others. What I would add to that, rather than detract from that, is that whether or not folks are able to have such an experience or even subscribe to the possibility of such an experience. Let's bracket that out without denying it, obviously. It seems to me that there is great um, psychological and sociocultural value in turning around in one's mind the absence of this archetypal human figure. If we believe that we are biology and culture, fine. It takes you to tango. We all have a father, a mother, if we're lucky. Right. Certainly we're imprinted by these two uh, uh, gendered roles uh, throughout our lives. And certainly we can ask the question from an anthropological perspective, what impact does it have on society if one does not envision uh, the powers that be to be of both genders right. or to be of different stripes, um So there's much to be said, I had um, a massive epiphany, massive, uh, a mind-shattering epiphany in 2010. And uh, a few months later, I started teaching at the School of Continuing Studies. I just finished my master's at that time. Mm -hmm. And I've taught at the school every year since, and I've just recently left so I could focus on um, OCHS and some undergrads at Calgary. I had this massive, massive epiphany. I was looking at sci-fi fantasy. And um, I was reading sci-fi fantasy. I was doing my, my, my sort of intuitive literary read of sci-fi fantasy and seeing that, oh, this is ancient religion. This is ancient Eastern yes. religion. Yes. Oh, th- these are all religious tropes, religious ideas. You know, Arwen is a nature goddess. She's commanding the waters to be parted so that... She's healing Frodo. I mean, this is it's, it was, the thing is, I, <laughs> I, didn't discover, <laughs> I didn't discover Star Wars and Lord of the Rings first time until I was literally 30 years old. Right. So I discovered them with my training in people and religion and, and these archetypes. And then it was clear to me that, so I proposed this course to talk about ancient religion and <laughs> modern sci-fi fantasy. And while I'm preparing for the course, I, I discover Joseph Campbell. <laughs> And I discovered Joseph Campbell's influence on George Lucas. I'm like, oh, I'm not nuts. There's a connection here. Absolutely. But, the, but the huge mind-numbing revelation to my psyche was there's no mother in our creation myth. There's no mother in the West. We are the motherless children of Abraham. This has to have a deep impact on a cultural level. And then I started reading the Hebrew Bible. In, in translations, I don't Hebrew or, or Greek or Latin mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, had this epiphany this is n- never having taken women's studies never having studied this at university It occurred to me that oh my goodness this is the only creation myth on the planet where everything comes from a man <laughs> and <laughs> um, womankind is blamed for sin Adam's punishment is to, to deal with the earth. God brings bread from the sky. It's like the father breastfeeding you, right? And I had all of these epiphanies of, oh, this is a narrative of a people usurping the power of the, the fecundity of the earth, the power of fertility. This is, this is a people who are sort of eclipsing the power of the feminine, or at very least putting it in the hands of the masculine sky God. And it just, huge epiphany, massive epiphany. And so that was the basis for for probably my most popular course in continuing studies at the University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I was able to find a whole no shortage of literature (laughs) to back up my airy-fairy ideas. But but there obviously is an absent uh, mother principle in the West. And at the same time, the traditions that are um, non-Orthodox or not really accepted uh, sort of all the Abrahamic traditions have sort of a a shadow tradition that fills in that gap, whether it's the Kabbalah or the Shakina, whether it's Gnosticism. Yeah. Whether it's Sufism, you know, and it's, it's just a fascinating, fascinating thing that this, this, um, deeply atypical creation narrative is actually the creation myth of the global village unconsciously. Right. And so there's there's a lot to be said about that. Um, Now, whether or not this is historical or we can, we can, you know, this line of thinking to me is not a historical project. One can find, I think, in every epoch of history, there may have been people who've been worshipping, for example, Mother Mary, the way in which a Hindu may approach Lakshmi or the goddess. Mm You know, I had an experience, I was maybe eight, nine years old and I was, on some vehicle in Toronto and I was astounded because even at that age, I knew to be self-conscious about my Hindu heritage and I knew right. that Christians were different. At that age, I actually wished I was Christian, believe it or not, because, you know, it's sort of, it gives you a chance to fit in yeah, right. uh, or at least less friction. Now, of course, I wouldn't change your thing, but <laughs> for for an eight-year-old immigrant, it's, it's a huge, it's a different world. Yep. And I was astounded, passed by this, 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 um, Catholic church, and there was this statue of Mother Mary in the yard, and I was astounded. Primarily Italian uh, congregation, they would come and offer flowers to the ver- to the Virgin Mary on the way in and say prayers for her. And to my mind, I'm like, that's that's so Hindu. And, <laughs> and now, decades later, I could sort of understand. Well, if someone wants to relate to the divine feminine, then what option does one have? Right. Right. Um, what, what do you most hope people take away from this book?
0: Well, um, I don't know. I really don't know what... I guess people have to trust themselves. They have to... And I, what happens in my classroom, actually, that is what has given me the most hope. And it's just the book is simply, as I said, it's the experiences that my students had in the classroom that made me even gave me the courage besides, you know, some of my friends who said that I have to write it. Um, So in the deep quiet of our being, there is this source, which is so marvelous, I often talk about all of us turning into hungry, hungry ghosts, pretas. I mean, hungry ghosts, Tibetan Buddhist term, but comes from Vajrayana, Pretas. We're not satisfied with anything. We're living in the middle of plenty and constantly craving for more. Even, so this mother, this mother nature, I mean, funny that even Western world, which God up there and mother nature is not God, but they still call her mother nature, right? Uh, And now in our delusion, we thought we are separate from her. Uh, And both theism, extreme theism, monotheistic theism versus extreme atheism, scientific materialism, which are two sides of the same coin, actually desacralize materiality. So the key thing that my student got that I wrote in the beginning, in the introduction, I said that when we take the word mater out of the word materiality, we fall into materialism. And I was so shocked that my 18-year-old student could understand it. What does that mean? That means we have separated the spirit from matter. And we see this is just matter. This is dead matter for science to extract. Or, and it's always feminized from Cartesianism to religious and including a lot of Indian Prakriti Purusha problem. <laughs> if you don't get it, if you don't get Sankhya and you fall too much into Vedantic Maya Wadi stuff, you, there is a lot of mess there. I mean, well, I'm absolutely aware of uh, terrible, terrible oppression of women in India. I mean. Uh, there is something to be said that just having a goddess is not necessarily you know, uh, a solution to everything, except, of course, in the deep psycho-spiritual realm, that's a different thing. But what has happened, what we have become, these hungry ghosts consuming and consuming and consuming to the brink of this incredible uh, devastation, self-destructive. I think... This is what I want people to know. That there's nothing to be afraid of. Everything has already been given by the mother. I mean, mother nature is one aspect of the mother. She's a cosmic mother. She is the one who nurtures. She's the one from where we have come. Um, And there's no fear. I mean, it's easy to say, (laughs) but if my, young American students' experiences and any testament, it is not that hard. And all the practices that have been taught, even yoga, these are body practices. They're not just mind. They're not simply about the mind. They bring you to the depth of your own body where the sacred nature of the body is very, very clear. If you don't take your entire materiality as something numinous will keep destroying everything, including ourselves. So what the mother God does actually for me, any God can do that in a real sense (laughs) is this total sense of the sacred without binary opposition between sacred and the profane. It's not like sacred is in this temple and profane is out. No, It's it's this integral sense integral sense of something which is non-dual but does not destroy duality. That's why the term that is used actually in Vajrayana as well as you know Shaiva Shakta tradition is Advaya, where we can dance together, where everything has been sacred, this conflict, this perpetual conflict, and I resonated with you discovering about these, you know, science fiction stuff. I teach science fiction, in a course. But I had discovered how all these mythologies are showing up because my sons were playing this video. I said, my goodness, they're just resurrecting all the world's stories, right? Because the Western materialistic atheism, which, by the way, pervades the whole world now. There is no boundary. You cannot say this is West, this is East. It's as much present in Bangalore you know, uh, or Johannesburg or anywhere, you know. Um, But this world is also demythologized, right? Created a disenchanted world, kind of reductive sense, vitally nihilistic, and that creates, you know, all kinds of problems. We know the mental illness, all kinds of disorders that we're suffering from. They are a product of that, disjunction so talking about the mother god is simply to create the balance and i discovered that in gnostic christianity the, there is mother father they call about mother father god so first at least bring the feminine back <laughs> bring the feminine back bring the aspect of the feminine uh, that is suppressed because it opens us up to areas that are very vulnerable right opens us but without that there is no creativity without that there is no beauty it is nothing but some sort of dry consumption of stuff i cannot even call it you know capitalism consumerism which is the uh, economic markers are it's stuffism we have no sense of beauty we have no sense of you know this beautiful geometric a uh, mandala that the whole universe really is. And she introduces us to that numinous materiality. So I want to demystify the word materialism. Materialism is this reductive. We have not learned to really um, treasure all the, you know, this magnificent universe.
1: So if I may, Mila, with respect, I want to provide the opportunity for two purva uh, to speak to, two interlocutors who may have, you know, ideally these voices will come in with respect and say, look, I don't know what you're talking about, Madam. Uh, the uh, 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 Kali is a, 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 a goddess from the, uh, from the Hindu culture, which obviously flourishes in Bengal. And then we have these other religious traditions. And how am I who can only go by what I can see and know through the sensory um, apparatus and my critical thinking and perhaps some inference and, and whatnot, how can I access what you're talking about? I, I, I sort of will suspend my disbelief, my incredulity, uh, but I'm not going to sus- suspend my faculty of reason or my empiricism. How, how do I, How I don't know what you're talking about and how can I know you're talking about Where should I go next?
0: <laughs> Good question. By the way, the great mother, and again, this is something that I've discovered through my exploration of the Western world, is also supreme reason, by the way. Not ratiocinating rationalism, which is a truncated aspect. And I come from a highly literate, highly intellectual tradition, as you know very well. It is not some sort of soft, simple, Uh, wishy-washy path either. If I take the Indic tradition seriously, we have to look at the entire tradition, not just this one thing or the other. So total understanding of our supreme reason means it's a heart-mind. It's not a separate thing. So somebody who says, how do I go about it? If you are interested, by the way, I don't care if you don't, because this is not a proselytizing tradition. You're not going to shove stuff down people's throats. (laughs) If the call comes, you're going to go. You have no choice. And believe me, the peril, and I wouldn't go into that. (laughs) The perils you feel are very real. But you have no choice. You will go to this because it's like the attraction, the pull is just tremendous. but there are ways. If there were no methods, then a Buddha will not speak of you know, skillful means, right? Uh, the Padanjali's, is the, you know, chara. they will not create methodologies. Uh, Kabbalah will not have these methods. You know, Gnostic traditions will not have the Hesychus, I mean, the, um, the Desert Fathers of Christianity. They all created methods right? Even simple thing like the Mala. So when you actually understand what the tradition is, it is simply see your own mind. It's not that hard. I do these small experiments in all my classes with my students. First, go see what's going on inside yourself. You have to suspend your disbelief. If you want to go deeper, first see And in two minutes in my classrooms, my students see, first they realize that they are not here. Their mind somewhere else. They are anxiety-ridden, they are worried about, you know, their boyfriend, girlfriend, their jobs. They're constantly ridden with anxiety. uh, Different spectrum. So two, three minutes of simple self-observation will show you a path to yourself, that may take you to, and again, of course, uh, if you want to take the journey, uh, there is a conscious journey, there is an unconscious journey. Uh, As you know, our Indian tradition says that we're all on different spiritual journeys, uh, whether we know it or not. But people who are curious, they can go to the depth of their own tradition. Fortunately, these methods like yoga and all that that are so popular now can give you a glimpse.
1: So, thank you for the response. If you permit, I will, I will channel another kind of interlocutor. Please do with you. So, so I am, I am, I am um, a practitioner of a Western tradition. Right. I am uh, some stripe of, uh, uh, of 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 Judaism, or I'm a Christian. And this whole mother god, uh, this absent mother god. You know, do I need to, if I wanted to stay within the parameters of my tradition, do I need to um, resort to or engage these other sort of marginal traditions, Kabbalah, Gnosticism? They may be out there. They're not sort of what I'm being taught at the church. You know, what does one do when one is on board with divinity they have a practice they may be somewhat open-minded but they're in a western tradition and there is no divine mother what do i do
0: well if it works for you perfectly good as i said there are wonderful really great people christian people you know full of kindness full of generosity love uh, they follow their tradition they do so much good for you know, and they're happy if you do not have conflict. You're not having war in the family. You are generally okay with your world. <laughs> um, what's the problem? I, as I said, this is not something that I'm shoving anybody's you know throat or anything. It's not necessary. Uh, the church practices themselves are profoundly beautiful. It's funny that when I was very young in Kolkata, I had walked into a, a you know a cathedral. And like, you know, we were like Hindus, so we go take Prasad, right? So when they asked us to line up for, you know, for the Eucharist experience, I, we just stood and we took it. We took that Prasad. <laughs> the blood and, you know, bread. and I didn't know. Later, some people said, you cannot do it because you have to be Christian. I said, what? It didn't make any sense to me. But now when I look at the rituals, beautiful rituals, and think about it, how many Hindus are actually going out and trying to really understand what Kali is? Most of them are going and putting some flour in, okay, mama, give me this, give me that, you know, and they're going about their business. At one level, most people, these are just socio cultural things. When I ask them, I say, huh? People don't even notice what the murti is. I mean, when I was a kid, I was very curious, I wanted to know what this murti means, right? So, so in that sense, I would say, well, if it is working, perfectly fine. If you are curious, well, there is a wide, beautiful world out there. Um, and that's about it.
1: Mm. Now, of course, uh, my, my listeners know because of, they've had exposure but i hope that you understand these are just interlocutors that are respectfully advanced for the sake of discussion i have no vested interest in yes
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) i have i have enough of the youth to corrupt on my own without the podcast so i don't need to convince anybody of anything not even them um no it's been it's been lovely um uh, very interesting chatting with you more and more there's a wider range of literature on the podcast because it's it's grown beyond what I expected a podcast in quote-unquote Hindu studies could possibly grow into. And so we're including various emic voices, various comparative projects, various developments in the field of loosely Hinduism or Hindu studies. So it's been quite interesting speaking with you and I did receive a note from one of our audience members mm-hmm. uh, who had requested that we take a look at your book. So I'm glad we got a chance to. If those of you out there are listening, by all means, you could send me a note. You can go to rojblockhorn.com. There's a contact page and form. And send me a note if you have a request or a comment. And we'll see what we can do to ameliorate your podcast listening, and especially <laughs> at hopefully the tail end of COVID 19 here. Um, uh, Neela, was there anything else about the book or your work? or your platforms or that, you, that we couldn't touch upon before we close today?
0: Right. So I think since Kali is about dissolution of identities, at this point in my life, I do not have an identity. I had written in the beginning that as soon as Kali mantra takes hold of your being, your gender, your caste, your religion, everything falls off. Uh, and that in itself is a profoundly freeing experience. Um, if, if I'm asked to, you know, put myself in some box called Hindu, I cannot do that anymore. Uh, I cannot say I'm a Buddhist either, even though practices are Vajrayana. <laughs> right now, I am a student of a Gnostic Christian teacher. My guru right now is Rosamond Miller. Uh, An amazing someday, hopefully I'll write about her. So I can only speak for myself. This is a personal journey, where I discovered a lot of fellow travelers, different from coming from different things. And of course there are people who also challenge, like my class, when I teach the class, there are people who are frightened. I know some students can, oh my God, there's some devil, right? Goddess is a devil and whatever, whatever. but I don't have anything to say, except that uh, uh, this journey has brought me to places, human places. I don't know about something that is beyond my own experiences. The experience of Shunya itself is uh, you know, something so strange that we cannot quite articulate. Uh, mother principle has give me joy more balance, less conflict, <laughs> but this and just plain, you know, Ananda. So,
1: what more does one need? But Ananda? <laughs> 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 nothing to add, nothing to take away. Um, right? But, that, but
0: yeah, again, but with, again, I also discovered this Ananda because it's life, right? It's not sitting in some cave, so on a daily basis, you also have to deal with the pain, the COVID is telling us, right? So where regeneration and degeneration, they're part of thing, life and death are part of this thing. Suffering, the first noble truth of the Buddha is very real, Uh, not just in its grasping aspect, but everyday pain and suffering. But um, I think this connection with something uh, deeper within us, you know, it gives us that ability to live
1: life joyfully wonderful well thank you for uh, your time today and appearing on this podcast Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you Um, for those of you listening we've been speaking with Dr. Neela Bhattacharya Saksina on her very interesting book absent mother god of the west and the subtitle says it all Kali-lover's journey into Christianity and Judaism. Perhaps this may be of use for your spiritual journey, for your, for the enhancement of your perspectives uh, in terms of the kinds of ways people relate to religion or the goddess. And perhaps you might be interested in some of the material, uh, the material culture and the texts that Neel explores in her book. In either case, we hope you enjoy it. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion today. Until next time... <laughs> Keep reading, keep listening, and keep reflecting on the abyss that is (laughs) Kalima. Take care.
0: Thank you very much, Raj. Take care.
1: My pleasure.